The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husband and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, that in your teaching, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opportunity may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Emmaus. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for the truths that we have sung about and have prayed and have read and have had read over us this morning. We've got to pray that as we uh, transition now, and uh, continue our worship by corporately submitting ourselves underneath your word. I pray that you would help me, that you would uh, help me be clear. Lord, I pray that I would um, accurately communicate the content of your word and also the tone of your word. I pray that in all of these things, your church would be built up, that uh, we would be humbled, and that you would save some this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Titus chapter 2, if you didn't hear, go ahead and uh, turn there. Titus chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. Let me just say uh, welcome um, on behalf of the pastors here, to, especially to, to any visitors. Um, we, we mention this uh, every week, but it bears repeating that we don't have really any gimmicks here at Emmaus. Um, we, we just sort of have one thing, and that's the gospel. So we have our Bibles, we have the gospel, and that's it. And so our hope would be that uh, by the time you leave here uh, this morning, you will leave being more in love with the person and work of Jesus than when you walked in here. And so that's basically why we do everything that we do here, and um, that's why we're going to uh, be submitting ourselves underneath his, his word proclaimed this morning. So Titus chapter 2 um, this morning, I get to talk about one of, my favorite, one of my favorite concepts in the whole world, and that's uh, one of my favorite words is this word consistency. I'm going to talk about how there is a uniquely Christian way to live life. Basically, the idea is that the gospel monopolizes. When Jesus Christ becomes Lord over your life, he becomes Lord over your life, literally every single little thing. So... There's, there's not one area of your life that doesn't fit comfortably underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so much of the Christian life is basically just the process of discovering areas of our life that haven't been submitted to the lordship of Christ and humbly and joyfully submitting them to the lordship of Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about what the Christian life looks like and how it adorns the gospel. Now, remember a few weeks ago when we first started this study, Josh laid out for us the marks of a, of a church, the marks of a healthy church. And Titus specifically gives us three marks of a healthy church. We have right pastors. And that's what he talked about the first, the first week. We have right doctrine. That's what Pastor Ronnie preached for us last week. And then right living, which is what I'll be talking about this morning. And specifically, in today's passage, we're going to see Paul lay out a very clear argument. And this is the argument. This is, this is the thesis, if you will, for this morning's sermon. It's simply this, that there is, there is a uniquely Christian way of life, 
which is empowered by the gospel in order to adorn the gospel. There is a uniquely Christian life which is empowered by the gospel in order to adorn the gospel. And we're going to be spending most of our time on that latter portion of that thesis statement, to adorn the gospel. And specifically, so keep this in the back of your mind as I'm preaching, as we walk through the text, keep this in the back of your mind that when we adorn the gospel with our lives, there is this massive missiological implication. There's this massive missions, evangelistic uh, uh, motivation for living this way because what Paul is going to tell us is that when we live our lives in conformity to the gospel, when we live our lives in such a way that we adorn the gospel, we confirm the doctrine, we confirm the message that we proclaim. So basically the idea is that if you're a Christian, nothing you do is irrelevant for the gospel. Your life will always either uh, contradict or confirm the gospel message. It will either obscure it or it will highlight it. And so specifically, Paul's going to give us some case studies. What does it look like for you to live your life in such a way that your living adorns the gospel? And the three case studies that we're going to look at this morning are the, uh, in the case of older and younger men, older and younger women, and church leaders. Now, let me just say this. I'll just acknowledge this real quick. There is a fourth category, which is bond servants or slaves, and I have no time to, uh, to cover that. So... I am just letting you know from, from the get-go the, the, the reason we're, we're uh, going to basically skip over that section is because other sections demand a little bit more time and attention, and I'm limited on, on how much time I have. So, um, but that was a calculated decision because in a couple of months, we're going to be preaching through Galatians, and I think we'll have plenty of time to talk about slavery, New Testament's perspective on slavery um, during that book study. So... So let's dig in. Um, Read with me uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down to verse 6. Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. And then verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, the point here is that these men are instructed to live in a kind of way that wasn't typically characteristic of older men in Crete. Remember, Cretans prided themselves on lacking self-control, dignity, and sobriety, right? But Paul, according to Paul, self-control, dignity, and sobriety are the marks of a mature Christian man. They're the characteristics which adorn the gospel, And this point is made even clearer with the next couple of instructions he offers when he says the older men must be sound, stable in faith, in love, and steadfastness. So not wishy-washy. The picture you get is one of stable, steady faithfulness, right? Consistency, dependability, predictability even. That is what marks a a mature Christian man in contrast to being liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Remember that, chapter 1, verse 12. And then Paul goes on to summarize the same instructions for younger men with just the general characteristic of self-control. Now, it's interesting that Paul gives a greater explanation for the older men, and he simply summarizes these instructions for the younger men. So for the older men, he explains what self-control looks like. For the younger men, he summarizes it. Now, I don't think that this disproportion of time um, and attention towards the younger man is owing to, you know, Paul basically giving the younger guys more license to sin, like the standard is lower for them. That's not what he's saying. And and he's also not simply uh, giving this summary information because self-control is a prerequisite for all of these other things. That's true. Like once you're self-controlled, you're going to be able to be, you know, sound in faith and love and, and steadfastness. But I think the other reason, one of the, the, the main reasons why he's giving more attention to the older men is he's highlighting the unique responsibility of older men to lead and teach by example how younger men are to live. The point is that 
Younger men will learn how to live godly lives which adorn the gospel when they see older men in their community doing so. Now this means, this means men, that you are called to live righteously not just for the sake of your own soul, but also for the sake of those who will learn by your example. Because it's unavoidable. It is unavoidable. If you're a man, you are or will be the model for younger men. That's one of the responsibilities that you were born with as you were born a man, <laughs> as you were born male. You were born with the responsibility of teaching and leading other younger men, especially your sons. This, is, this, this reality is already a terrifying sort of presence in my own life because my son will do everything that I do. Like he, he mimics everything. He mimics my words. He mimics the tone of my voice. He mimics my facial expressions his gestures, if he sees me brushing my teeth, he wants to brush his teeth. If he sees me putting deodorant on, you know, he'll grab the deodorant and lift his shirt up and start putting it on his belly. He hasn't figured out how to get all the way up to his armpit yet. But he's, he copies everything that I do because I'm constantly discipling him, whether I intend to or not. And the same is true for the rest of you older men. You're always... You're always, always, always going to be discipling younger men. That's never a question. It's never a question of whether you are or not. The question is, as you're discipling, will your lifestyle adorn or defile the gospel for younger men? Will it highlight or obscure the gospel? So take heed how you live your life, brothers. If instability, listen, if instability and lack of self-control mark your life, you need to know that such characteristics are not in step with the gospel. They're not Christian, right? Instability and lack of self-control may be the characteristics of a Cretan. They may be the characteristics of an American, but they're not the characteristics of a Christian. So that's what the standard is. Now, the next case study we're going to look at is older and younger men, uh, women. So read with me, starting in verse 3. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So the general instructions that Paul gives older men are here echoed for the older women. He's basically saying, don't act like a Cretan, act like a Christian. And so older women are told to, uh, that they, they, they ought to be marked by reverent behavior, which looks like, and then he goes on to explain what that actually looks like. Reverent behavior looks like self-control, specifically when it comes to wine and slandering. Now, the expectation, for, uh, the, the expectation to practice self-control when it comes to drinking alcohol is placed on all Christians throughout the New Testament. So this isn't something that's unique just to older women. Um, but it's, it's, I think what this means is that in Crete, this was a particular sin that the older women were more prone to. Now, I don't, I don't think that here it's necessarily the case that older women are uniquely or disproportionately prone to the sin of wine. So I'm just going to address the topic in general. Um, now, first of all, on the topic of, of alcohol, this is going to be a really practical sermon, you guys, so I hope, I hope you're fine with that. On the topic of alcohol, let me just say this. You cannot substantiate prohibition as a biblical mandate. Okay, it can't be done. If you ever hear a sermon where somebody says, you have to, you know, abstain from alcohol, they have twisted the scriptures. You can't do it. You can't substantiate that claim. And that means that when Paul says, whenever you eat or drink or do whatever you do to the glory of God in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it means that in principle, in principle, right, as a Christian, you have every biblical warrant to apply alcohol to those instructions. You can include every biblical warrant in principle, alcohol, and this concept of whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, in principle. Now, with that being said, I am seriously concerned with the ambivalence that seems to mark many young Christians like myself when it comes to the topic of alcohol. And the reason is because although Paul never commands Christians to abstain from alcohol, 
He is unambiguous about the fact that there is a uniquely Christian way to consume alcohol. So when you, when you hear me say, Christian, when you hear me say that as a Christian, you have every biblical warrant to, to drink alcohol, you have every biblical warrant to apply alcohol to that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. When you hear me say that, I'm not saying you have every biblical warrant to drink alcohol like a non-believer, okay? There is a uniquely Christian way to drink alcohol, to consume alcohol, and make no mistake, the uniquely Christian way to consume alcohol never leads to drunkenness. Once it does, it becomes unchristian. So let me be clear. If you drink to the point of drunkenness, you are not acting like a Christian. You are not drinking like a Christian. You're drinking like a Cretan, and you need to repent. And as such, you need to repent and pursue holiness, which may look like abstinence, right? It may actually look like abstinence for you. If you can't control yourself, if every single time you drink, somebody has to call you out on, on you know, drinking to the point of drunkenness, it may look like abstinence to pursue holiness, or it may simply look like self-control. Now, before I move on, let me also just address this. Let me say this, that brothers and sisters, accountability for this sin, just like every other sin, is our responsibility. It's our responsibility. It's your responsibility to hold your brothers and sisters accountable, which means if your brother or sister in Christ, it becomes apparent that they've crossed that line from healthy consumption of alcohol to the glory of God to drunkenness, it's your responsibility to call them out. It's your responsibility to hold them accountable and not just in a jokey you know, sort of manner either. Like it's some joke that, you know, that one particular person Every time they drink, they get tipsy or they get drunk. That's not funny. That is a biblical sin that you're supposed to confront with the same level of seriousness and, seriousness and sobriety that you, you know, confront other sin. You know, think, think pornography. Are you going to go to your friend who's, who's slipped up into pornography and say, oh, well, that's just so-and-so, you know, that's, that's just him, you know, that's a characteristic that he typically does. No. You're going to be, be very serious, very sober about the way that you approach that issue. Now, I know that many of you do abstain from alcohol, and, and it may be uh, you know, personal preference, it may be personal conviction, it may be personal taste, you just don't like the taste of alcohol. Or it may, like in my case, be that you're in a particular season where exterior circumstances demand that you don't drink. Like, I'm a, I'm a student at Midwestern Seminary, and we're not allowed to, to drink. So I'm in this season where, where I can't actually drink. And so for, for those of you who are in this season of abstinence, you may think that you're basically off the hook here. However, the charge that Paul couples with slavery to wine is not so easy to wiggle out of. And it's this charge of slander. Now, I've found, I have found in my experience that the, the most common this way man, this sin manifests itself is not really in this open sort of, you know, I'm going to stand up on a podium and assassinate somebody else's character, you know, in public. It doesn't really happen like that or like trashing them online. Most of the time it doesn't happen like that. Most of the time slander manifests itself much more insidiously and much more passive aggressively through gossip. That is where slander most of the time shows up in the church. And now hear me, hear me as, as someone who's confessing a sin to you. This is something that I've engaged in, right? But with that being said, let's, let's just resolve together right now as a church family that we will not let that continue. God forbid we allow gossip to continue in our midst. When you see it, shut it down. When you see things start happening like that and the conversation, shut it down. Don't be afraid to be the Jesus juke Christian to kind of hijack the conversation and say, you know what, guys, I think we're coming dangerously close to sitting in the seat of scorners. I think we're coming dangerously close to gossip. Don't be afraid to be that Christian. Be, be the, do the favor for your <laughs> brothers and sisters in Christ and save them and yourself from committing an atrocious sin. I mean, it is atrocious. Gossip is Atrocious, uh, atrocious. Gossip and slander may be the behavior of a Cretan, but it's not the behavior of a Christian. Now, moving on, Paul's next instruction is for the older women to instruct the younger women what is good. Now, I wasn't going to say this, but 
uh, Ronnie did mention to me that last week he wanted to um, emphasize a particular point, and he ran out of time because he was, <clears throat> uh, didn't run out of time. He had to skip, ditch two pages of his sermon notes because of his allergies. But, um, but the point that he wanted to make, if you recall last week when Ronnie was kind of um, lamenting the state of theology in, in, the, in the church at large right now, one of the things he really wanted to emphasize was that this is bad for all Christians, but particularly so for a lot of um, like women-focused theology. A lot of it is just terrible, right? And that's something that I've, we've, we've all lamented together, but, but I want to use this as, as the occasion to challenge the women in this congregation to take that actually seriously, all right? So take seriously your responsibility to disciple other, other women and do it in a particular way where you're not settling for lousy theology. You're not settling. You, you are charged to think with the same level of rigor as, as you know, anybody else. And so the standard isn't lower you know, when it comes to theology for, for women's the, theology, okay? So just keep that in mind. But in this context, Paul is specifically talking about, he, he gives specific uh, definition for what, um, for what, what is good means. When he says for the younger women, for the older women to teach the younger woman what is good, he identifies it as this. He says this, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now we need to camp out here for a bit. The reasons for which I trust are obvious. <laughs> now it's helpful for us to examine some of the cultural context uh, in Crete in the first century to understand Paul's instruction here. We need to understand what occasioned him to give these instructions to the Cretan women so that we can know how to apply them to our own lives. But let me just say this. Sometimes I fear that we can jump to cultural context to simply explain away the teachings of the Bible that are hard for us. You know, so we'll say, well, well, sure, the text says this or that, but that's just their cultural context. What it actually means for us is, and then we'll go on to skirt around the issue and explain it away and shove it into the closet of first century cultural context, which basically translates to, I don't have to listen to this text. And so let me just give you this fair warning. The text pretty much is as straightforward as it sounds. <laughs> um, it pretty much means what it sounds like it means. So if when I say cultural context, when I say first century background, you're thinking that, okay, we're going to rescue this situation from conviction. I'm sorry, I don't really have a lot for you. Now, with that said, we need to ask the question, why was Paul compelled to offer these instructions to the young women of Crete? Specifically, why does he emphasize love for husbands and children, self-control, purity, which is talking about sexual purity here, and homemaking or homeworking? These instructions aren't unique to the New Testament. Most of them aren't. But many of them, the reason why we have to ask the question, it's kind of an odd situation, is because many of these instructions are unique to women. Right? So nowhere... In the, in the New Testament, other than this passage in Titus, does Paul instruct women to love their husbands? Rather, he always tells them to respect their husbands. And then he tells their husbands to love their wives. And by the way, husbands being told to love their wives was super countercultural in first century Rome because Roman men rarely loved their wives. And rarer still were they faithful to them alone. Most of the time, Roman men had all sorts of multiple sexual relationships and they typically, they were typically only intimate with their wives so that their wives could bear legitimate children for them. That's the social situation for Roman men. And that explains why Paul says, men, love your wives. This was super countercultural. We're cutting against the grain of social norms. When he says for men to love their wives and to be loyal to them alone, that is incredibly countercultural. So what was going on in Crete that compelled Paul to tell wives to do what he typically told husbands to do? Right? Typically, he's, he's needing to tell husbands, love your wives because they're not. So what was going on in Crete that compelled Paul to tell their wives, love your husbands? Well, in the first century, 
a phenomenon began to take place with the emergence of what scholars and, and New Testament commentators identify as the new woman in Rome, or the new women in Rome. And this new woman was basically characterized by a hostile rebellion against the traditional Roman social structure, which was intrinsically oppressive to women. And it was. We can say that. You know, we, we as, as Christians, we actually have a substantial reason to say that that social structure is intrinsically oppressive to women. When you treat your wife basically as just a, a baby maker, you know, she's, she's just there to, to bear legitimate children for you. So that's an intrinsically oppressive social structure. And so this, this, there was this uprising of this new movement, the, the new woman in Rome. But this rebellion was primarily manifesting itself in the form of sexual promiscuity, both in general apparel, which is why you have instructions all throughout the New Testament for how wives are to dress, and in actual marital infidelity. So what was happening in first century Rome, think Think in terms of ancient sexual revolution. That's what was happening. An ancient sexual revolution, which, by the way, many of the products of this ancient sexual revolution mirror the product of our sexual revolution today. Let me give you an example. One commentator describing the social situation in Paul's day notes, he says this, the practice of contraception and abortion by the new women, although condemned by numerous writers, and an offense against the traditional value placed on the household slash family become, became increasingly widespread because of, get this, because of the new woman's desire to pursue the free life unencumbered. Does that, does that sound familiar? I mean, it's crazy. This, this, this sexual revolution manifested itself in the same way that a lot of our sexual revolution does. So in other words, the new woman in Rome desired to act like a Roman man, which was not a good thing, right? They insisted on having the same social freedom to be sexually promiscuous, specifically, to be sexually promiscuous because this was the social freedom that men had, and that for them is equality. So what does equality look like? Equality for uh, the men are allowed to have all sorts of illicit sexual relationships outside the home. What does equality look like? It looks like me as a Roman wife getting to have the same sort of freedom to have illicit relationships outside the home. And so this explains why Paul felt the need to instruct wives to relate to one another in the same way that he typically instructed husbands to relate to one another or husbands to relate to their wives. It's because they were sinning in stereotypically masculine ways. And so the instruction that they needed was stereotypically masculine instruction. Right? Do you get that? Typically, the men were the one who were pursuing outside exterior sexual relationships, and Paul had to give the instruction, stop doing that. Love your wives. And now in this situation, it's the wives that are doing that, and he has to say, stop doing that. Love your husbands. Now, typically, this kind of philosophy could only be embodied by Roman women of means. Wealthy Roman uh, uh, wives or widows were the only ones that could really sort of embody this new woman philosophy because they were the only ones who had the kind of social and financial capital to risk that sort of rebellion. They were, they're, they're, they were the only ones who, even, who could even take that kind of risk. But Christianity, this is where things get interesting for us in Crete. Because Christianity actually provided some of that social capital. So think about this. You have Christianity, which is this message that says men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, no matter who you are, you have equal access to God and Christ. There is no more male or female. There is no more Jew or Gentile. There is no more slave or free, but all are one in Christ. This message that rightly recognizes the dignity and personhood of all women regardless of social class comes along and basically is, is obviously very popular for, for, for those reasons exactly. For the, uh, you know, it kind of contrasts the unjust social norms of the day. And so what you have in Crete is this, this odd mixture where you have one philosophy that's talking about equality over here and it basically flouts you know, sexual promiscuity in the name of equality. And then you have another philosophy over here that's also talking about equality, but a biblical kind of equality that identifies men and women as equal, co-equal image bearers of God. And in Crete, you have the confusion of the two. They've kind of mixed together. 
and they don't realize that the two are actually incompatible with one another. Now, this is the context to which Paul offers his instructions for younger women to love their husbands, love their uh, children, and to work at home. So he's contrasting, just to be clear, he's not contrasting working at home with working outside the home, right? We can't make Paul answer the question, can wives work outside the home? Because that's not the question that he's faced with. He's not asking the question, can women work outside the home? He's not contrasting working inside the home with working outside the home. He's contrasting working inside the home with having sexually illicit uh, relationships outside the home. However, when he does that, he hearkens these women to repent of their sexual promiscuity outside the home in order to be faithful to their primary vocation, which is loving their children and husbands and working at home, managing the household. So although he's not contrasting it with working, at, working outside the home, one of the tragedies of, of the, the, this philosophy of the new woman is that, first of all, it brought infidelity into the mix, but also it prohibited, it inhibited the, the, these Christian women from actually living out their primary um, vocation, which was to love their husbands. So yes, let me, let me say this clearly. Paul is saying that the young mother's primary vocation, her primary calling is to love her children, love her husbands, and uh, manage the household. This means that as much as it may upset us, as much as we may want it to not be the case, the role of a housewife, um, uh, stay-at-home mom, you know, home manager, that role isn't merely some social construct that was thought up in the 20th and 21st centuries. It's not. It's biblical. It's, it's far older than, than 1950s you know, Norman Rockwell painting, which, by the way, also obscures this message, just like the new woman in Rome did. So that's not equality. New woman in Rome, that's not equality either. This is equality. Different roles to the glory of God. Now, with that being said... Let me make clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, okay, hear this. Hear me say this very clearly. I am not saying that it is a sin for women to work outside the home, for wives or for mothers to work outside the home. Working outside the home is not in and of itself a sin for mothers. But working outside the home becomes a sin for mothers if it inhibits their ability to be faithful to this primary vocation. This primary vocation, it becomes a sin for mothers if it intrinsically inhibits them from faithfully living out this primary vocation. And by the way, my wife was helpful to point this out to me earlier uh, this week. All sorts of things become sin if it inhibits you from living out your primary vocation. It may be Netflix, it may be social media, it may be social engagements, whatever that looks like for you, any, anything that basically inhibits you from living out your primary vocation, your primary calling from the Lord is a sin. And so my challenge to you, specifically my challenge to the sisters in Christ here is this, don't simply assume that this isn't the case for you. Right? When, I, when, I say, when I say your work outside the home has only become a sin for you if it hinders you from being faithful to this vocation, don't simply say, okay, that's not the case for me. That's, oh, 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 that's what, oh, that's all you're saying? Okay, that's not the case for me. My work doesn't do that for me. I, I can actually still live out this primary vocation. And you may, you, it may actually be the case, but the challenge is to take this text and wrestle with it. Go home and pray about it, wrestle with it, to, uh, look at the circumstances of your life and look at the, the, this calling of a, you know, this vocation um, of, of, a, of a mother, a young mother, you know, in scripture and actually see if there is consistency between the two. You have to actually wrestle through this if you haven't, if you haven't wrestled through this. And husbands, the charge is also the same for you as well, to wrestle through this with your wives. Specifically, you need to ask the question, you need to wrestle through the question of whether or not your wife is pressured to neglecting this primary vocation of hers because you have put too much of your primary vocation on her shoulders. You need to think about that. You need to actually take this home, wrestle through it, pray through it, and talk about what it actually looks like for your family to walk in faithfulness to these texts. Now, before I move on, I want to emphasize a couple of very important realities. 
right? I've spent a lot of time on this particular subject because I know that it's so contentious, right? It is, it is, uh, it, it's a hot topic. <laughs> and, um, and so I spent a lot of time in it because it's, it's a stewardship that the Lord has given to me to make clear what his text says. But it's important to make clear not just what his text says, but how his text says it, what the, what the tone is, what the implications are. And so it would be a tragedy for me if the women here left feeling discouraged and restricted and condemned by these instructions. Specifically, condemned by these instructions. So the point is, if you are in Christ, that is fundamentally your identity. It's not your motherhood. It's not your ability to mother well. You could never have mothered your way out of the domain of darkness into the domain of, of into the kingdom of his beloved son. You could never have mothered yourself from uh, spiritual death to spiritual life. That is all of grace. Remember, the context here is that Paul is writing to Christian women. He's writing to Christians who have been saved. They're not condemned. So your motherhood could never bring you out of condemnation, and it can never bring about your condemnation. Let's say the quote-unquote worst-case scenario, which isn't actually a worst-case scenario. I'll explain why later. But the, for lack of a better term, worst-case scenario, let's say you're sitting down, you hear me preaching this, and you say, I don't even have to ask the question of whether or not my life is in conformity to the text. I know that it's not, and I have to go home and figure out what it actually looks like for us to repent and walk in faithfulness. Let's say you're in that situation. You are not condemned, right? You're not a second-class citizen and not a second-class Christian. Listen, all of the Christian life is just finding new ways that we're not in submission to Christ and then submitting those things to Christ. So that's a great thing. The the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a great thing, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the second reality I want to emphasize is this. God's vision for the Christian life isn't restrictive, It's glorious. The life and conformity to the word of God is the good life, right? It is the good life. You're not settling for being obedient to the text of scripture. Now, why do I emphasize this? I emphasize this because what you are being told over and over and over again, you're being catechized with this mantra that says, unless you strive for soaring vocational success outside the home, you're wasting your potential. That's what you're told as a mother. You're told over and over again, unless you strive for a career outside the home, you are wasting your potential. Now, you may have vocational aspirations outside the home, and that can be a wonderful thing. But what we're hearing from our culture is that unless you have vocational aspirations outside the home, you're a disgrace to femininity and are nothing but a sponge of economic resources. That's the lie that you are being told. And if you don't believe me, I'll simply point your attention to a few articles uh, that have been published in the wake of, of this report by Australia's Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a mouthful, but it means basically what it sounds like. It's <laughs> Australia's Organization of Econ- for Economic Cooperation and Development. And they put out a report a couple of months ago that basically said that the most untapped workforce in the country of Australia is stay-at-home moms. And so this led to a whole bunch of articles that basically came in the wake of that of, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to actually, you know, beef up the economic situation in Australia? And it led to one woman named Sarah Leigh Marquand to write an, article, uh, write an article that's titled this. This is the title of the, the article. It should be illegal to be a stay-at-home mom. It's actually, it should be illegal to be a stay-at-home mom because it's Australian, <laughs> but... But I am not joking. This is a real article published as a real solution to the problem of stay-at-home moms not contributing to the economic situation in Australia. And also, if you guys haven't heard yet, Bill Nye also throws in his two cents on how to save the world from overpopulation. And it's basically stop having so many kids. So so he says, younger women, go off and start a career very early on so that by the time you want to have kids, you'll be too old to have too many kids. So Bill Nye, you know, that's his, um, you know, those are his two cents. 
Now this leads, this leads, this is why I emphasize this so much. This leads to stay-at-home moms answering the question, what do you do for a living with I'm just a mom? Right, that's the answer. Like, like it's something to be ashamed of. Listen, I cannot communicate to you enough how much I hate that phrase, just a mom. So like hear this as a pastoral charge. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you better not let me hear those words escape your lips. Just a mom, just a mom, just a mom. The task of nurturing and raising up little image bearers who, by the way, will live forever in heaven or hell, largely dependent by God, by, by means of, of God's, you know, God's means, largely dependent on how you raise them. Image bearers who will live forever. Moms, you're, you're in the business of soul shaping. There is nothing that's more significant than that. So don't ever say, I'm just a mom. Say, I'm a mom. I, I, I raise children. I'm raising an army of image bearers who are going to, to this, is, this, is my, this is my aspiration, by the way. I want to raise an army of godly young men and women who are going to subversively transform this culture by taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can't get bigger than that. You can't get better than that. You can't get more uh, uh, eternally significant than that. So moms, you are in the business of soul shaping. The consequential effects of godly mothering honestly cannot be exaggerated. And let me just say this. I was reminded of this recently as I think about how many of us, how many of us here are, are still... Um, you know, we, we, have, we have things like counseling that are necessary because of the consequential effects of, of poor godly mothering. And then we have, we have, on the other side, we have examples of, of men and women who, who are raised up in a particular way, and they are products of godly mothering and godly fathering. My wife is a perfect example of one. She, she is the, the picture of what it actually looks like if you, can, if you devote yourself to the vocational calling of, of God, the, the long-term ramifications cannot be calculated. Now, also, she's going to hate me for doing this, but if you want a picture of what godly vocational motherhood looks like, allow me to commend the example of Brittany Nelson to you. So Brittany Nelson's in my community group, and uh, she's, our community group has this joy of sort of enduring this really trying season for her as her husband uh, Tim is is deployed overseas, and uh, it is it's trying. It's a difficult season, and yet her devotion to her calling as a godly mother and as a godly wife in the midst of frankly harsh and unforgiving circumstances is inspiring. And I, I don't use that word lightly. It's inspiring. So if you want a picture, I would commend the example of Brittany Nelson to you. All right, so moving on. The third case study that we're going to look at is church leaders. What does it look like to adorn the gospel as a church leader? Read with me verses 7 and 8. Paul, in the midst of this, you know, sort of these instructions for the church members in Crete, he turns his attention directly to Titus, and he says, Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So the point is obvious, I trust, that the one who's teaching these habits, the one who's instructing these habits, must exemplify these habits. This is the higher standard that your pastors are called to, so pray for us, because it is a high standard to be integral in all of these things, an example of what integrity looks like in all of these things. So it's our, our higher calling, both for the good of our own souls and for the good of the church, but also for the good of the reputation of the gospel, which, which brings us back to you know, what, what I asked you to keep in the back of your mind from the beginning is that Paul has an outward missiological focus for all of these instructions. He's got this this evangelistic motivation for all of these instructions. These instructions adorn the gospel that we proclaim. They confirm the effectiveness of the gospel that we proclaim. 
And this is clear when you look at all of the uh, purpose clauses which undergird all of these instructions. If you look at verse five, uh, he says, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse eight, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This all means that the, the defense of the gospel, the proof of the gospel's effectiveness is exhibited, is, is demonstrated by simple faithfulness in the ordinary things. Simple faithfulness and the ordinary things. You want to be an apologist for the faith? You want to be an evangelist for the faith? Confirm the gospel that you proclaim with your mouth. You have to proclaim the gospel with your mouth. Confirm that gospel with your living, okay? There is a consistency between the two. What godly living looks like confirms the truthfulness of the gospel that we proclaim. Now, we cannot end here. Right, Because if I were to end here, we would all be doomed. Because I have just preached imperative after imperative after imperative of what it actually looks like. And if, if I don't make clear, by the way, the way that you do this is not by white-knuckling and, and you know, pulling yourself up from your own bootstraps, you would be doomed. That is not the way that we actually are able to live out this kind of living. Paul gives us exact, an exact explanation. He he, the, throughout this whole letter, he's talking about godly, godly uh, uh, pastors and godly living and godly doctrine, and he inter- intermingles them constantly. And so if I were to leave you today with just the, the, the um, command to be faithful in these ways without actually giving you the means by which you can live out that, that life, I will have obscured this text because the, all, everything that I just said depends upon what he's going to say in the next few verses. It depends upon it. It hinges upon it. Okay, it doesn't actually work without these next few verses. So I'm going to dip into Josh's Josh's sermon a little bit, which is going to be next week. But read with me, starting in verse 11. So Paul just gave all of these imperatives, all of these really high and lofty expectations for what it looks like not to be a Cretan, but to be a Christian, to not look like a Cretan, but to look like a Christian with the way that you live your life. And then he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the gospel indicative that shores up all of the, those gospel imperatives that we just talked about. Remember, the thesis that I gave you this morning is that there's a uniquely Christian way to live life which adorns the gospel but is empowered by the gospel. And this is the point, that the grace of God has a backbone. The grace of God doesn't just come to declare us righteous in one particular moment in time. It comes with a training emphasis. It comes with a strength. It comes with a backbone to shore you up and live for godliness. It's not just there to make up for your sins when you fall short. It shores you up and strengthens your resolve and trains your fingers for war against sin. This means, Christian, that the same grace, the same grace, this is the, this is the same grace of God that brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life is intended now, right now, to empower you to overcome the sin that you're struggling with. Same grace. And so for those of you who feel condemned by these high gospel imperatives, don't. If you're convicted, that is the grace of God training you to renounce all ungodliness. That's what it actually looks like. It looks like being convicted and then by the power, by the grace of God, actually conforming your life to the standards that God has laid out. That is grace at work. So conviction of the Holy Spirit is a fantastic gift. It reminds us that the grace of God is still working in us. It is this guarantee that the grace of God is still working in us. It's still doing what God has promised for it to do. 
And for those of you who feel hopelessly unable to live this kind of life that adorns the gospel, hear this promise. The grace of God which opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel also strengthens you to live according to the gospel. And guess what? God doesn't give half of his grace to anyone, right? It's not like for everyone else, I'll give this grace which saves a person but also trains them to renounce ungodliness. But for you, poor little you, I'm going to give only the, that, that first half of the grace. I'm just gonna give grace that just saves you, but I won't give you grace that actually trains you for, to renounce all ungodliness. No, he lavishes his grace on us. And this grace manifests itself not just in the initial conversion to Christ, but also in the ability, the grace-empowered ability to actually live a faithful life. And it's hard work, right? It is hard work to look at your life and recognize areas that are not on submission to Christ. It's hard work to look at that and then submit those areas to the Lordship of Christ. But the promise of Scripture is that your hard work is the grace of God training you to renounce ungodliness, It is the grace of God manifesting itself. So when you strive in the name of Christ by his power, that is God's grace working in you. The grace of God has a backbone. It's not passive, it's active. And so in all of this, we're reminded that there is a uniquely Christian way to live life, which is empowered by the gospel in order to adorn the gospel And by God's grace, may we continue to strive for this uniquely Christian way of life. May we adorn the gospel with our living in all of the different areas that we've talked about this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for its truth, and we're grateful for what it means. God, by faith, we do recognize that that your calling for us is the good life. And Lord, we also pray uh, that where there is unbelief, that you would help our unbelief. I pray that you would build up this church, that you would use the word preached today to build up your church. I pray that you would uh, speak kind um, words to the hearts and minds of everyone here to recognize that that godly conviction never leads to condemnation. Remind them of the fact that their identity is in you and not in any other uh, aspect of their lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.